Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, it's great to see you. And uh, if you could keep your Bibles open at Hebrews chapter 12 into 13, that would be tops. Uh, that's uh, where you will need to have your Bibles open a bit later on. But you've also got some verses in the sermon outline. And uh, I'll talk about the other piece of paper in just a minute. Uh, Tonight we're considering the tricky issue of worship and uh, what does the Bible have to say about worship. And so what I'd like you to do is just spend a couple of minutes, chat to those around you. Uh, What do you think the word worship means? Or if you don't know what it means, what do you think uh, people uh, in church think the word worship means? And uh, how does it get used uh, at this church, at other churches, uh, in the media, uh, in Christian circles? etc etc go for it just a couple of minutes uh, we're considering a tricky issue tonight uh, over a word that has a fair degree of emotional weight attached to it. Uh, so if somebody calls out an answer for how the word gets used, um, don't think later on in the service, but they said something different to what the preacher preached. Um, we're all here to learn, and um, Dan can learn. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's right. Um, uh, so don't um, you know, judge each other for the answers that you give. We're all here to learn. And so the point of this bit here is really just to share what's out there in the ether uh, of how people use the word. And so over to you, how do people use the word worship? Singing. Singing. Okay. Did anyone else come up with that? Yeah. How else is, does the word get used? Yes, reverence for someone who has some worth. That's it. Oh, sorry. Yes. Prayer. Yeah. I have a question. Okay, ask ask it away then. That's a good question. <laughs> Let's see what happens by the end of the sermon. Uh, a people talk about church services being worship services. Yes, worship services, yeah. Or being worship teams. Worship teams, even worship leaders <laughs> of worship teams to sing worship songs. Sometimes the set pattern of a service the order of service, as we might call it, is called a form of worship. The position of your body. The position of your body, yes. All right. Let's go, Brandon. Is a form like the way different churches worship, isn't that, isn't it time for that liturgy? Yes. Yeah, which comes from, well, we'll see that in a second, yes. Um, <laughs> good one. Liturgy. Um, Friends, uh, it's fair to say that particularly in Sydney, but I guess throughout the world, uh, there is some conflict over what the word worship means and how people think appropriate worship ought to be expressed. And it's one of those things that uh, a lot of emotional weight is put on it. 
Uh, if you've been in church life long enough, you will know that one of the issues around worship is the issue of music and singing. And you will also know that, uh, praise God for such fine musicians in this congregation and humble servants, but often where there's a source of conflict between a ministry team uh, and people in the church, it can often be over the issue of music and uh, what role the musicians have in church and the place they have in church and what, uh, what they're doing actually is in God's sight and uh, the choice of words, the choice of music, all of those things. Uh, I come uh, from a variety of different church backgrounds where uh, in some experience, uh, if you don't use the Anglican prayer book week in, week out, your worship is faulty. On the other hand, and perhaps a bit closer, not saying this is this church, but this style of church, there are people that say, if you do use the Anglican prayer book, your worship is faulty. There are those who would say that contemporary music is a failure to worship God properly. Whereas others would say to sing old hymns is a failure to worship God properly. Whether our liturgical forms, our liturgy, how we conduct our services, the words we use, whether it's spontaneous or formal, the kinds of music that we use, we make judgments and we almost put, if not outright put, a moral weight upon how those things are to be done. I have met people that do say that we must have organ music to have true worship of God because organ music was what they had in Jesus' time. <laughs> I kid you not. And we might laugh and chuckle at it and when I first heard this kind of view it took a lot to keep a straight face. Because uh, I finally heard it in person, rather than just hearing that people do think about that. Um, they actually did have organs back then. Nothing like the organs that you think of, um, pipe organs. Um, but there is a view that, no, that's the true form of singing praise to God. But while we might chuckle at it, how many modern contemporary services scoff at the idea of having a piano, or in this morning's case, a cello, or in Dom's case, a violin, or in the case of Barara, a bassoon, or at Asquith when I was there, flutes, not just one, but two flutes. The idea that, no, for it to be truly worship in today's age, it must be a guitar band. We put a moral weight upon our preferences. And that's not right. When it comes to worship, though, we use the word in a variety of ways and we can get confused and things can get quite heated. One of the most, in fact, almost the universal use of the word worship in Christian uh, churches is to speak about singing. Christian worship teams 
lead us in worship with their worship leader. And what they mean is song. And if you've been in Sydney long enough, you will know that the fires have been stoked and arguments have been had about whether that's the right use of the word worship. And there's a particular publishing organisation that has written often in the past on this issue, fair to say, from a fairly condescending tone, and in a way that has not been comprehensive, but has always been piecemeal. And so it's never been a really thought-out, well-argued position. And so people rightly object to it. And so there's a lot of confusion. And almost to use the word worship, or to at least question its meaning, can raise a lot of difficulties with people. Brothers and sisters, I want you tonight to set aside prejudice, to set aside preference, and to ask two things. One, what does the word worship mean in English? And two, the important one, how is the word worship worship used in the scriptures? The word worship in English just means ascribing worth to another person. When you worship somebody or something, you are saying that thing is worthy. And of course, you might remember skits or videos or people uh, doing their we are not worthy um, and bowing down, uh, we're not worthy. Um, They're saying, no, this person is worth something and we're not worthy to be in their presence because they are worthy and we're not. It's just a word that's often used in a religious context. In fact, if you remove the word worship from the Christian context, almost our entire understanding of the word worship has to do with religious service. Someone might worship an idol. When we think about that, we think about them bowing down to an idol. Or they might worship a false god. They serve a false god. Their allegiance and the things that they do are to false gods. And that might be informal, it might just be an offer of allegiance, it might be a bowing down, but it also might be a ritual service that they offer. We might use the word worship in a title. It's not so long ago, and in some context still today, people might talk about your worship. To speak of, I think it's judges, isn't it? In courts. Giving eminence to an older person. And for those who love their Anglican prayer books, in the old Anglican prayer book, when you got married, husbands, this is what you got to say when you gave the ring. With my body, I worship you. Who got to say that as part of their wedding vows? Surely these two did. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Macbeth, did you get to say it? Yep, yep. we said it. With my body, I worship you. Sounds a bit racy, doesn't it? I give my body in utter service and devotion to my wife. Those kinds of meanings of the word worship are the kinds of meanings that we will see in just a moment. The idea of bowing down, of giving allegiance to, of utter total devoted service, of ritual service, 
And we need to see how those words are used by the scriptures. But notice one thing even here. The English concept of worship could involve singing and music, but it doesn't need to. Worship could involve formality, but it doesn't need to. It could involve spontaneity, but it doesn't need to. What is essential in the English word is esteem and worth and giving honour and glory to another. But that's the English word. We actually want to know what the Bible says. And here's where it gets more confusing. What does the word worship mean in the Bible? The problem is, the word worship in our Bibles translates at least four different words in the New Testament. And those different words mean quite different things. And the other problem is, our English translations don't translate those words consistently. So what I've given you is actually every single instance of each of those words in the New Testament. And if you want to go and check later on, you can go and check later on about each of these four words. But one of the things you will notice as you go through the lists is sometimes your English Bibles will use the word worship for those words, but other times it won't. It'll use a different translation for the word, like service or sacrifice or works or so on and so forth. So it makes it a little bit tricky. If we're going to find out what the Bible says about worship, we actually need to ignore the word worship in one sense and actually look at what the Bible says about these four words um, in a language that most of us here don't know and will likely never know. Although we still hold out hope for Dan. Uh, when's your exam, Dan? <laughs> in two weeks. There we go. Excellent. Um, so let me take you through these four words. And on your outline, I've kind of given a rough and ready translation of each one, and also the Greek word, so you can sound cool uh, to geeks around the world. Um, the world of worship in the scriptures. The first, and probably the most common, simply means to bow down before, to get on your knees, to kneel before, genuflect, prostrate oneself. Worship as kneeling before another. In the Old Testament, time and time again, people bow down to God. Usually, they fall down on their face when they encounter God. But it's literally getting on one's knees uh, to acknowledge one's humility and unworthiness. We are not worthy before the one who is worthy and one who does deserve esteem and respect. But importantly, while it's an outward action, it should be reflective of an inner heart, an inner reality. And so, in these verses that we have in Scripture that talk about bowing down, that's exactly what the word, well, this particular word for worship means. Throughout the Gospels, it's a common sight to see people kneel before Jesus in humble supplication. 
The wise men give respect and esteem to Jesus when they meet him and they kneel before him. Jesus declines to do the same of the devil, however. One should worship, kneel before God alone. And you will remember the angel in the book of Revelation who tells John, don't kneel before me, don't worship me, worship God alone. In the book of Revelation, in fact, there's a lot of bowing down. The elders symbolically do it in the vision of the throne room. And as I said, it's what the angel refuses to accept from John when John twice tries to bow down before him. But in the verses you have there in John's Gospel, in John chapter 4, we see the clearest idea of bowing down and its implications for what it looks like for Christians to bow down. You see there uh, with the woman at the well, uh, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped, bowed down on this mountain, but you say Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship, ought to bow down and kneel before their God. Jesus said to a woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship, bow down to the Father. You, will bow down, you bow down to what you do not know, and we bow down to what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshippers, true people who kneel before God, will kneel before the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to kneel before him, to bow down, prostrate oneself before him. God is spirit, and those who would give the worth, the honour, esteem by bowing down must worship in spirit and in truth. Worship as kneeling before. But here in this passage in John, we see a spiritualisation of it. And for the Christian, the kneeling down that we are to do before God, the prostration that we are to do, is to be a spiritual one. Our hearts, our minds, as we'll see in just a moment, all our heart, soul, mind and strength, given over to the worth and esteem and the acknowledgement in humility of the greatness of our God. Does it ever happen in church, though? For all of the uses in the New Testament, this idea of bowing down before God is only used once in a church context. And it's in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 25, when the non-believer comes in and hears the word preached and he falls down and says, Truly, your God is amongst you. Where he hears the word of God and responds by acknowledging God in our midst. I keep referring to the prayer book, and if you've never read the prayer book or never even touched a prayer book, um, uh, well, that's the world that we live in these days. I continually find uh, these days people wanting copies of out-of-print prayer books because they realise the value of them later on in life and can't get them anymore. Uh, because they're out of print. But one of the curiosities of the original prayer book, and here it is, 
you're all sitting down at the moment and you expect that to be normal for church life. In the original prayer book, there is only standing and kneeling. In a service in church, you would stand for the entire time except when you kneel in prayer. Kneel to confess sins or kneel to hear the word of God read. Back in those days, churches were empty buildings. Like, we, we got rid of all the chairs here. We'd all be standing or kneeling. That's all we'd do for the entire service. There might be some pews on the edge for the sick and the elderly uh, who do need to have a seat. But by and large, there were no pews. There were no seats. That was a later introduction. At the time of the Reformation, we could do two things before God. Stand before him or kneel before him. Does that mean that we ought to be kneeling? And kneeling a whole lot more? Usually, these days, when I hear people talk about kneeling in prayer, they talk about it metaphorically. They don't actually mean they would do kneeling. They just say, oh, yeah, we've got to get on our knees and pray. Um, they don't actually mean that they will get on their knees. It's just a phrase. We live in a very physically stunted culture. This is Western culture, particularly those of us who've inherited Britishness with the stiff upper lip. Stoicism, not showing emotion. But as you read your Bibles, you realise people do things in other cultures that we simply don't do. Would you cut yourself in grief? Scrape yourself with a fragment of pottery? Would you beat your chest or your body? Would you sit in ashes? Would you tear your clothes? Would you sit in silence, unable to eat, day in, day out? Some of those things we do see in our society. And they're usually attributed to mental illness. But in other cultures, those things are natural expressions of grief, of humility, of being overcome and overwhelmed. We celebrate our highs and lows in our Australian culture very inwardly rather than outwardly. Aside from church, pretty much the only time you see people sing are when they're drunk or we're in the, they're at the footy. But even then, Australia's version of singing at the footy is pretty tame compared to other places, isn't it? <laughs> the most we can get is Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. And uh, how sophisticated that is. But when we're overcome with emotion our outward reality will sometimes appropriately reflect the inward reality. I have to mention Chelsea now because uh, it's really important to mention Chelsea now, especially for Dom's sake, um, as a Manchester City fan. But a few years ago, Chelsea had a striker named Didier Drogba. 
uh, who came from the Ivory Coast. And as someone from that culture, his emotions were always on his sleeve. Uh, everything was over the top, seemingly, according to British sensibilities. He'd cry at the drop of, the hat, of her hat. Everything was a big performance. But that was just a cultural difference. I mean, yes, football is hammered up all the time, let's face it. And if you watch the game this morning at lunch, as he played it, a spectacular 10-metre roll after getting tackled. Um, but that's just the way that game goes. But what was interesting was our inability to accept a different culture's way of expressing emotion. Brothers and sisters, as we grieve as we celebrate, as we feel overcome and overwhelmed, there is an appropriateness for outward expression of the inner reality. And at times in your life, I hope, and I'm sure for most of you, you have felt a desire to kneel when you pray. Because you are so overcome with the burden and seriousness about what you're praying about. That's what we do. It's natural and right. But we don't kneel just for the sake of it. It's an outward expression of an inner reality. The same goes for fasting. It's never commanded in the New Testament. But you see Christians do it as they are overcome with a need and a desire to bring before God in prayer something that is on their hearts. Worship as kneeling before. But there are three other words, and then we'll go through these ones a lot more quickly, I can promise you. Um, well, I shouldn't promise because I always go over time. But anyway, um, let's go through these. Um, uh, the next one is worship as public service. It's not a particularly religious word, but it is a word of formality and action, of doing prescribed certain deeds and acts. It's the word from which we get our word liturgy, although how we use the word liturgy is quite different from what it means here. But in the New Testament, you see things happen sometimes in a religious context, sometimes not in a religious context, um, where people do service. And that's basically what the word means, public service. So John, for instance, not John, John's father, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, he performs worship in the temple, a public service he was rostered on for one month uh, to do what he needed to do. Angels are described as those who provide service in Hebrews 1, 7 and verse 14 under God's direction. In the church, people provide this service, a public help of providing the needs for the saints in Jerusalem who are going through famine. But more often than not, this word is used in the Old Testament, and it's used in the Old Testament to talk about the priestly service, the things that priests did before God. And as we've seen, as we've looked at priesthood over the last couple of weeks, that all finds its end and fulfilment in Jesus. That form of worship, of doing public service, finds its end and fulfilment in Jesus and Jesus alone. Once again, there is one place and one place only where that word is used 
of a church context. And that's in Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. What does the word worship mean in that context? It's almost impossible to know. It's not described for us. It's not defined for us. It's just used. But how is it used? We don't really know. The closest we can come to is probably it's talking about prayer. Because they worship and fast in verse 2, and then they fast and pray in verse 3. The idea of service there that the church performs is, if anything, it's prayer. Otherwise, we simply can't know what the word means. But there's another type of service that the word worship gets used for, and that's prescribed service. And here again, we have another word that often gets used in priestly contexts in the Old Testament, but is fulfilled by Jesus in the New Testament. But here we begin to see the word used for Christians and what Christians are to do in their lives. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. The last word is worship as fealty or worship as allegiance. And most often in the New Testament, that is the word that's used for Gentiles, non-Jews, who are God-fearing believers. So Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and 11. He's a Gentile, he's not a Jew, but he worships this God. He gives his allegiance, his uh, fealty, his honour, his due, his service to that God, not any other God. And that's how it's most often used in the New Testament. In the world of worship, it's about allegiance, it's about bowing down, and it's about set service for this God. What does that mean then for you and for me, and particularly for church? First and foremost, we have to understand that Jesus is our true worship leader. All of those things that are set and prescribed for priests under the old covenant, Jesus fulfills. He's the one that leads us in worship. That is, offers the right sacrifices and honour and a praise and obedience to God. He's the one who fulfills those things. He is the one true worshipper in those things. And no other person's worship is acceptable before God in those things. More than that, in the New Testament, we see that worship of Jesus is not idolatry, but is itself God-glorifying. We're only to worship God, to bow down before Him. But in the New Testament, we see people bow down to Jesus. And rather than it be blasphemy, rather than it being dishonouring to God, rather than it being idolatry, it instead glorifies God and is seen as worship of the true God. Because to serve Jesus... To bow down and give allegiance to Jesus is to give allegiance to the Father.
Thirdly, our worship, that is, our kneeling down before God, our allegiance to God, and the set works that God gives us to do now that we're in Jesus, are a spiritual reality rather than any other type of reality. In John chapter 4, we're told that we will worship in spirit and truth. And as you can see there in those series of verses, right down to the end of the page, time and again, what we're called to do is to worship God, honour Him, serve Him, bow down before Him, do what is required of us through a spiritual reality. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Literally, the word is your rational worship. It involves our minds, which makes sense, because what did Jesus tell us that we will worship God in? Spirit and truth. Our worship of God starts with our minds and our hearts. It has an outward flow into what our bodies do, but it starts first and foremost with our heads and our hearts. Spiritual renewal in our inner being. You can see that in verse 2 he goes on with... Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed in the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable and perfect. In chapter uh, in Philippians 3, we're told that we're the circumcision, who worship, serve God by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. In chapter 9, verse 13 and 14, again, it's our consciences that are purified by Jesus, our minds, so that we might serve, worship the living God. Brothers and sisters, we are called to worship our God spiritually, and that involves the truth and our minds. A fight for those things. A battle for our minds. And from our minds will flow godly lives. So look then at that passage in Hebrews 13. In Hebrews 13, or at the end of chapter 12, we've had that great spiritual vision of where we are in church that we've looked at over the last couple of weeks. And the consequence is to let us be grateful and worship, give service to God with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. How do we do that then? How do we worship this God with reverence and awe? That's what chapter 13 is all about. When we love with brotherly love one another, we're worshipping our God. When we show hospitality to strangers, we are worshipping our God. When we remember those and visit those in prison, when we help those who are mistreated, when we honour the marriage bed and keep sexually pure, we are worshipping our God. When we let go of greed for money and live content with what God has given us, 
We are worshipping our God in spirit and truth. When we remember our leaders and honour and imitate their way of life and imitate their faith, we are worshipping our God. When we hold firmly to the truth and don't depart with false teaching, we are honouring and worshipping our God. When, verse 15, we offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, we are honouring and worshipping our God. When we do not neglect to do good, but are generous, we worship our God. The mind and the heart, spiritual renewal, evidenced in a life of godliness and activity. Let me skip D for your insanity. Worship and church. What has all of this got to do with church? I hope you can see from what we've briefly looked at, almost nothing. Worship in the New Testament is barely used as a church term. It's used of you and me in our relationship with God to give honour to Jesus, to see Jesus as the one who is worshipped on our behalf, who is worthy of our worship, and we worship as we, through our spiritual renewal in our inner being, give service to one another in love because we love our God. What then of singing? it's a way we worship God. But it's not how the scriptures use the word worship. We offer the sacrifice of praise, which is a part of our worship of God. But we make a mistake when we reduce the word worship to singing and singing alone. Because it's far more than that. When you go home and you do the washing up for your parents, or when they do things for you, which is everything, let's face it. When we help the old lady across the road, literally. When we give generously. When we help the person in need who's lonely. The person who's thirsty, we give them a cup of water to drink. The person who looks down and lonely, and we say, are you okay? We are worshipping our God. We must not limit worship to those who are up the front. Worship leaders, worship teams or ministers. That is not the heart of worship. The heart of worship is in each one of us. The reformer Martin Luther spoke about the honour and dignity of the father changing his child's... Every translation says diapers, but I'm not American, so I'm going to say nappies. There's as much honour and dignity in that before God as the preacher who preaches God's word. 
we can all worship our God. Because we can all, through spiritual renewal, serve one another. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus who has worshipped on our behalf, providing the sacrifice of salvation that we could not provide for ourselves. We thank you that you have renewed us by your spirit in him, that we might worship you with all our heart, soul, mind and strength bowing down before you in spirit and truth, doing the service that you require of a life lived for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.